Chapter Seven of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter Seven. Haggett's. Late in the evening, we arrived at Uxbridge, having careered there on the top of a screaming tram, and a few minutes' walk took us to the big disused timber yard where the theatre, a great barn of an affair made of what in my youth I had called congregated iron, with the imperial painted in big white letters across it, had been set up. Behind lay what had once been a field, and here several caravans, their shafts prone and empty, stood about in the evening light. So much I saw almost without realizing it, for I was tired out by now and little john seemed to grow heavier and heavier upon my arms i sat down on the lowest plank of a pile of rotting timber and leaning my head back shut my eyes mr whimperus said i with the firmness of despair you must arrange everything if they'll have me they will and if they won't they won't and anyway i can't walk or talk any more and I hunched the long-suffering little John up against me and stayed still. In a few moments more I was asleep. When the piper came back, attended by an enormously fat elderly woman and a dark lean young one, to wake me up, I was past taking an interest in anything beyond seeing little John fed and put to bed and following her there myself. I was vaguely conscious of a queer, twisted little person who was neither like a boy nor a girl, but more in the nature of some changeling creature, who appeared from nowhere, and, taking little John from me, tended her with amazing deftness, and then I climbed into a high bunk in one of the caravans, and knew nothing more, till I awoke some time next morning feeling rather stiff and very hungry. For a few moments I lay still, staring out of the open caravan door at the timber and a ragged thorn-tree against it, at one corner of the tin barn, all bathed in the bright light made of the oblong opening of the doorway by the comparative darkness of the caravan's interior. I was quite alone, but from without came a low hissing sound, like that made by grooms when they are rubbing down horses. I slipped out of my bunk and saw I was wearing a coarse striped flannelette nightgown, so putting my own coat on over it I peeped out. Seated on the bottom step of the caravan was the changeling creature I dimly remembered from the night before, so dimly that had I never seen it again I should have thought the whole thing a dream. Apparently it was a girl, as two pallid and scrawny plaits, stiff as tiny wands, stuck out from her head, which was bent low over little John, who lay placid and happy across this strange nurse's lap. The changeling was supporting little John with one hand under her shoulders, while with a sad-looking little brush she smoothed the infant's downy locks that were more like fur than hair. The hissing noise proceeded from the lips of the changeling, who, I afterwards learned, acted as groom to the caravan horses. 
a position she combined with that of contortionist, in which role she appeared in the knockabouts after the plays. When she heard me behind her, she started up nervously, and turning, raised two mild and prominent blue eyes, and for a moment I stood looking down into them. Good morning, said I, smiling and nodding at her. She stood still a moment, as though mistrustful, then an uncertain smile plucked at her little wedge-shaped face. Good morning, she answered in a thick voice as though her tongue were too big for her mouth, as indeed it was. I sat down on the top step and beckoned her to give me little John, whose attire I examined, finding it had been put on with good intentions, but what seemed misplaced ingenuity. The changeling's eyes followed all the movements of my fingers intently. She was plainly of an anxiously good heart, yet I had to be firm with myself or I could not have borne her presence. For that she was queer, there was no denying, and even physical deformity does not make me feel as sick as mental deformity. Of course we are all mentally wanting, that is a different thing. My brain has more blind alleys than most people's, if I am asked if I am mathematical, I reply that I can't add two and two, and am then crushed by the bewildering remark that mathematics have nothing to do with arithmetic. But the changeling was incapable of any mental outlook at all, and I had still to learn how far more important is an instinctive and clear spiritual outlook. Yet I caught a glimpse of something as I finished with little John's garments, for she glanced up at me again, this time with a gleaming smile, and I felt a queer liking in the midst of my repulsion. I never quite fathomed her position at Haggett's, nor who she really was, beyond the fact that everyone treated her with a half-kindly, half-callous tolerance, expecting her to do most of the dirty work and to get nothing for it beyond her living, and an occasional penny or so as a treat, this last when Mr. Haggett was in a generous mood. However slow her brain, her body was the most marvellously nimble I have ever seen. She might have been advertised as a boneless wonder, but as was generally the case with good material at Haggett's, her performances were thought nothing of and, of course, she was only useful in the short variety shows that were sometimes turned on after the piece of the evening had been played. She was certainly half-witted, but I think even more it was that her wits were not quite in focus with the accepted points of view of more worldly wits. I know I never worried over Little John when Emily, as the changeling was called, had her in charge even when the clouded wits were more out of focus than usual. Sometimes for days together the girl would be as good a companion as a little dog, and very like one, docile, affectionate, eager. Sometimes the curious withdrawn fit was on her, and though she kept by little John as usual, it was silently, with her knees drawn up to her chin and her milky blue eyes half-closed, the oddest thing I ever saw her do, she did one Saturday morning 
when a new penny had fallen her way. I was in the post office when she came in, penny in hand, and pushed it across to the girl behind the counter. Penny stamp, she muttered in her thickest voice. When it was given her, she took it up, licked it, stuck it carefully on to the counter, and walked out. There was something inexpressibly ludicrous about the action, and startled as I was, I had to laugh. My shrinking from the poor changeling was a thing of the past by then, and she, on her side, must, so Peter affirmed, have found some oddly focused point of view in me kindred to her own, for she lavished on me a devotion I was only too conscious, remembering how I had avoided her in disgust, of not deserving. On this first morning at Haggett's I was glad to escape her by taking little John into the caravan and shutting the door, while I made my toilette with much labour and a little cold water. When I again emerged, Peter was crouching on the ground outside, frying some bacon over an oil stove. Hello, there you are, he said. This is for your breakfast. Do you like it crisp or sobbled? Crisp, please. How kind of you, though. Well? Well, it's all settled. That is, if you agree. Do you like your bread fair-complected or brunette? I have both kinds here. Whichever's crustiest. Do you know who's fed little John, and with what? I saw Emily, the half-witted kid, dandling her. Is that the right word? Dandling her in front of Jinny, your van-mate, who with a bad grace, but, to my ignorant eye, much savoir-faire, was inducing her to imbibe milk out of a real baby's bottle. Jinny is our brunette, and plays tragedy in consequence. Our blonde, who is fat forty and fairer than nature made her, does the other thing. And I, who am neither one nor the other, but plain mouse as to the hair, and straight at that, what shall I play, do you suppose? Lead, I expect, when the Haggetts have had a good look at you, in which case you must prepare for ructions in the camp. I sat cross-legged, eating bread and bacon hungrily, and drinking a dark fluid which the piper assured me was coffee, and which had the merit of being hot, and he rambled discursively on. You'd better come and get your interview with Pa and Ma over as soon as you've finished breakfast, he advised. I've told them all the main facts, I think. They'd seen about the wreck in the papers, and the advertisement about Little John, description and all. I think Mrs. H. wouldn't be sorry if the fond mother appeared to claim her offspring, but with many sniffs she says she doesn't think it likely. Now, if you feel braced to meet the world, come along. I went along, accordingly, to the smartest-looking of the caravans, which boasted new red paint and much gilding, and there I found Mr. and Mrs. Haggett awaiting me. As far as externals went, Mrs. Haggett was a circular lady, upholstered in black alpaca. She had a complicated system of chins, of which the little top one seemed to button the others down. 
Her husband was a wide-jowled man with bloodshot eyes and pendulous cheeks, a ponderous bully of a man, with a deceptive stolidity of speech. As I grew to know the couple better, I came to the conclusion that never were two people more admirably suited to each other. Cold, calculating, relentless, and as unimpressible as iron. It was true what Peter had told me, that Mrs. Haggett looked after the girls, but it was for the sake of business. It would not have paid the Haggetts for their company to get drunk or gad about, and a strict though unostentatious watch was kept. Mrs. Haggett had a violent temper, but her husband could master her and did, coldly, heavily, as he did everything. I have known times when the roughs at the back of the hall started catcalling, and Haggett just came to the footlights, his bushy brows bristling with a passion that had a curious quality of ice in it. Not another sound, you at the back, he would roar, menacing with his fist, or I'll come round and fight the first man who opens his mouth. And so he would have, and they knew it, and were silenced. On this, my first interview with him, he was eminently businesslike, as was his wife, and I was formally enrolled as a member of the company. I was told I must present myself for rehearsal that afternoon, and be prepared to play a part that night, and on this I was dismissed to make the acquaintance of my fellow mummers if I felt inclined. I discovered that they consisted of the blonde, an overblown woman with a face too dark for her hair, and her husband, Augustus de Vere, the tragedy lead, who both lived in rooms, of Ginny, a handsome haggard creature with a wild eye, of Bert Mirrett, who shared the third caravan with Peter, and had been a draper's assistant and of a few colourless supers who never seemed to laugh. Those of us who lived in rooms were paid a pound a week for the women, and one pound ten for the men, while married couples attained thirty-five shillings between them. We caravanners only had fifteen shillings each. And how we worked! A different play each night, and some fancy turns as well. It is true we all forgot our parts occasionally, and were prompted in a husky whisper by Mrs. Haggett from her pay-desk halfway down the theatre. Bert Mirrett, a tall, hectic creature, with a profile like a biscuit that has had bites taken out of it, fancied himself greatly as an actor. We used to call him the elocutionist. His idea of delivery was to add E.R. on to all his words. He played the temperance reformer to my Gervais in a garbled translation of Zola's L'Assommoir. And just as I was raising the glass of wine to my lips, he would appear in the wings, finger upraised, and say solemnly, Gervaiser, doer, notter, drinker, thatter, as Charles Peace, most transparently disguised in the midst of detectives, he was a gem. Ha-ha, he would confide to the audience, 
while the minions of the law tried to look as though they didn't hear. They little knower that her Charlie Peacer is here. He was rather a trial on the whole, for his morbidly active literary sense was forever plunging him into situations from which we had to rescue him, and it was somewhat of a satisfaction to see him hanged in Maria Martin or the murder in the Red Barn. By an ingenious contrivance his face would go purple and his tongue loll out, to the wild delight of the audience. Amongst all the people who went to make up Haggett's imperial travelling theatre, there were only three people for whom it was possible for me to feel affection, Littlejohn, the Changeling, and Peter Wimperus, and of those three only with the last was any real companionship possible. On looking back it seems wonderful to me that I stayed there as long as I did, but after that first performance, when I had, on one rehearsal, to play Trilby, wearing salmon-pink silk stockings, the nearest approach to bare feet the delicate susceptibilities of the Haggetts permitted, it all seemed to me rather fun, and I said good-night to Peter gaily enough at my caravan steps. It's entirely owing to you that Little John and I are able to be earning our livings at the present moment, I said gratefully. If it weren't for you, we should be sleeping on the embankment. You are good, Peter Piper. I feel you're quite an uncle to Little John. And what is your position as regards that interesting infant? asked Peter. I'm a parent to her. Um, said Peter. What relation does that make you to me? I laughed and pulled the caravan door towards me, but opened it again to stick out my head and say simperingly, Oh, Mr. Wimperus, let me, let me be a sister to you. Oh, Miss Lovell, whispered Peter, with an answering simper through the darkness, this, this is so sudden. End of chapter 7